This is an ABC podcast. Hello there, it's the Religion and Ethics Report. Andrew West here on RN and at the ABC Listen app. Now coming up, the search for saviours in a secular world. First, though, almost six million people inside Ukraine have fled their homes. They're bunking down with friends or extended family. Around the world, there's a vast population known as internally displaced people. Disaster or conflict has forced them to move within their countries. The Norwegian Refugee Council says that in 2022, that number hit a record high. Alexandra Bilak is with the Internal Displacement Monitoring Centre in Geneva, which is run by the council. As you said, we are reporting this year an unprecedented number of people who are living in internal displacement. And in 2022, at the end of the year, we were counting over 70 million, precisely 71.1 million IDPs or internally displaced people. Now, this is roughly twice the number that we were reporting a decade ago. But more significantly, it's 20 percent higher than just last year alone. And this increase has been driven mostly by the sharp rise in internal displacement, of course, uh, in Ukraine as a result of the war there. So millions of people there were displaced both within and outside of the country as the fighting intensified since February and, and many front lines shifted throughout the year. So at the end of 2022, we were reporting a conservative figure of 5.9 million Ukrainians uh, internally displaced. But this wasn't the only reason why uh, these figures were so high. We also reported huge numbers of people displaced as a result of the Pakistan floods, but also as a result of many other new and ongoing conflicts from the Democratic Republic of the Congo to Somalia, Haiti, of course, still high numbers displaced in in Syria, Yemen and Afghanistan. Mm. And then, of course, a combination of disasters across the world. Yes, I'm going to get into that. One thing that really struck me, Alexandra, was a comment by Jan Egeland, who is the Secretary General of the Norwegian Refugee Council, He said there was a perfect storm and it had undermined years of progress made in reducing global hunger and malnutrition. What's this perfect storm? It's a very compelling image. Yes, indeed. What what Jan England is referring to is the fact that now more and more we're seeing countries that are affected by the combined impacts of both conflict and disasters. And they're being affected by factors such as political instability, disasters, climate change and indeed food insecurity. And food insecurity was the focus of this year's report. And we looked at the extent to which countries that are confronted with high levels of internal displacement are often those countries that are ranking the highest on uh, global food insecurity levels. So it is a combination of man-made factors, conflicts, but also nature. Mm Well, indeed. I mean, as you probably know, none of the disasters that we see across the world are truly natural disasters. They are, of course, linked to natural hazards. But the disasters themselves or what turns a natural hazard into a disaster is oftentimes a combination of political, social and economic uh, factors. It's, it's about bad planning. It's about rapid urbanization. It's about too high an exposure and a vulnerability of populations to these hazards. So even the disasters that we often think of as 
as being purely environmental and natural are in fact also deeply political, social and economic. And then of course in countries that are experiencing the effects of both disasters and conflict, this is very much the perfect storm that Jan is referring to because it means that people are often being displaced repeatedly cyclically, and in some cases, they can even become displaced permanently as a result of these combined factors. How do countries handle internally displaced people? How does a country like Ukraine, which is foremost in our minds at the moment, but it certainly shouldn't be the only country, handle the large waves of people just moving from one part of the country to another? Where do they go? How do they survive? The situations of internally displaced people vary hugely from from one country to the next and even from one part of a country to, to the next. But what these unprecedented numbers show globally are two things. First is that the root causes of the conflicts and the disasters that are causing these new waves of displacements each year are not being tackled. And secondly, it shows that the solutions that would bring some of these displacement crises to an end are not being found, which means that effectively governments are not accompanying people out of this displacement and these trends are not being reversed. In a country like Ukraine, which is still in the throes of conflict, you see people who are still moving on a daily basis. So the displacement is still very dynamic and it's still occurring on a, on a repeated basis. Whereas in other countries like Syria or even the Democratic Republic of Congo, where some people have been displaced now for 10, 15, 20 years, we're seeing much more protracted forms of displacement where people are still counted as IDPs because effectively they have not yet found a durable solution to their displacement. Some people would obviously find refuge with families in other parts of their home countries, but are we seeing the establishment, I'd suggest particularly in Syria and parts of sub-Saharan Africa, of just massive internal refugee camps, internal refugee towns almost? It depends very much. It's true that there are certain countries that have traditionally hosted large and protracted IDP camps to cater for the needs of mass movements of people. But more and more what we're seeing is that now people are often settling with host families, particularly when uh, local authorities don't have the capacity to establish those camps rapidly enough. In context of disasters, we see people who are evacuated into temporary shelters. And yet in other contexts, it can be movements within or into cities where people will rent if they can, they will rent accommodation or they will settle with friends or relatives. But typically where in those contexts, they will become much more invisible and much harder to target with the necessary assistance. Alexandra, one uh, figure did leap out at me, and it's not a place where I would expect to find such a large number of internally displaced people, 675,000 internally displaced people in the United States. What's the story there? Well, it's true that over the last few years, and particularly since we've started reporting on internal displacement in the context of disasters, a certain number of high-income countries have also appeared now on the global map. So we do report every year displacements linked to disasters in North America, in the United States, in Canada, but also across Europe. Uh, if you remember some of the heat waves that we've seen in the, in the south of Europe, but also severe flooding that has happened in certain towns across Germany, France, etc. And then all the way into Asia with Japan, if you remember the, the Fukushima disaster in, in Japan, we're seeing now more countries 
countries are becoming affected by this phenomenon, which shows very much that it is a global phenomenon, that no country is spared of it, but that within those countries, it will typically be those people who are unable to rebuild their homes fast enough, who will stay displaced for a prolonged period of time. So in the United States, indeed, we report every year high numbers of new internal displacements that are linked either to the hurricane season in, in the south or on the coastal areas, but also to uh, wildfires, for example, wildfires in, in California. Yeah, when you talk about, for example, weather events, massive floods, are some countries, and they tend to be in the global south or the developing world, better able to cope? I'm thinking of a country like Bangladesh, where there were 1.5 million internally displaced people last year. This is a country that is used to floods. It doesn't in any way diminish the tragedy and the hardship. But are some countries better able to cope? Absolutely. And I think you've pointed to to a very important point here, which is that, as you say, many countries, particularly in, in Asia and the Pacific, uh, that have been experiencing the impacts of such disasters now for a number of years have developed a much more advanced preparedness and early warning capacity. Uh, so if you look at today, uh, the impacts of some of the major disasters, which maybe 10 or 15 years ago, used to lead to less displacement, but much higher mortality rates. Now these disasters, because these countries have better early warning systems and a, and a better ability to anticipate and to prepare for them, are now able to preemptively evacuate populations ahead of these disasters in order to uh, reduce the mortality rate. And we're seeing now that many of these disasters now come with much lower mortality figures, but in, in a sense, and this is the reverse side here with higher displacement figures. But in this case, displacement can also be and should also be seen as a positive coping strategy in the face of these disasters, as long as it doesn't, of course, become prolonged. We know the long-term implications and the long-term solutions uh, because climate change is so much a part of the plight of internally displaced peoples. But that's long-term. What can we do, maybe not tomorrow or next week, but what can we do starting next month, for example? First of all, I think it's important to learn lessons uh, from the countries that have already put in place some very successful preventative measures, but also found some very successful solutions to these issues. So investing much more on the prevention side, I think, is the, is the top priority. There are many countries in Asia and the Pacific who have developed incredibly strong early warning systems that have very good uh, national data systems that allow them to track the number of people displaced, but also allow them to anticipate for future displacements coming from the impacts, the future impacts of climate change. And there are also countries out there, for example, in the Pacific that have made a lot of headway when it comes to planning the relocation of communities away from some of the most disaster prone areas. There are many lessons that can be learned from these countries. And I think documenting, investing in the documentation of those lessons and making them available in order for other countries to learn from them is a, is a priority. There also has to be much more focus on putting IDPs at the center of these solutions. In our report that focuses on food security this year, we've also shown how 
internally displaced persons are often themselves the farmers, the laborers, the vendors, the consumers, and they also have a potential to contribute to rebuilding and maintaining the food systems that are going to be needed to avoid these types of effects in the future. So putting IDPs at the center of those solutions is also a key priority. More importantly than anything, recognizing that this issue requires long-term structural solutions. This isn't something that it, that can be addressed within short time frames. It, it requires long-term investment. It re requires a lot of financing and many partnerships uh, across different technical sectors. Just finally, Alexandra, you've pointed, and this report highlights the Ukraine war as the principal driver behind this massive spike in internally displaced people in the last year. How long does it take after a conflict has ended to get internally displaced people back to the homes, back to the homes we presume they want to return to? Well, unfortunately, there isn't a, a simple answer to that question. We see huge variations in uh, in the time that it takes for countries, for governments to rebuild after a war, to offer long-term and sustainable solutions to internally displaced people. That length of time depends on so many factors. It depends first and foremost on the political will of governments to invest in this reconstruction and in these the rebuilding and the recovery suffered by displaced uh, people. It depends, of course, on the economy and the financial ability of the states to provide these solutions. And in some cases, it will also depend on many social factors. People may be able to return, but they may not be able to reintegrate in their community. So investing in, in reconciliation, in mediation efforts, in some cases even in transitional justice, are some of the typical barriers that we see when it comes to, to durable solutions. So really investment across all of those domains is, uh, is important. Alexandra Billick of the Internal Displacement Monitoring Centre. The flagship magazine of progressive Britain, The New Statesman, has unveiled its list of the 50 most influential lefties. And coming in at number 27 is none other than the Archbishop of Canterbury, Justin Welby. How did the head of the Anglican Church make this radical list? The Reverend George Pitcher was an advisor to a previous Archbishop of Canterbury. He now writes at the Substack blog, A Word to the Wise. Well, I'm not sure he'd want that particularly, Andrew. It's an accolade that he may wear with some reluctance. When I worked at Lambeth Palace for his predecessor, Dr. Rowan Williams, Rowan guest edited the New Statesman while I was there. That's something that I arranged for him. It got him into a lot of trouble with the uh, Conservative backbenchers in Parliament. So there's something of a track record with the New Statesman and Archbishops of Canterbury. <laughs> yeah, but I think in the case of uh, Justin Welby, you know, he said things that are very critical of the present government's policies. What has he said? His latest intervention has been to stand in the corner of migrants crossing the English Channel from the continent to seek asylum as refugees in Britain. There's something called the Illegal Immigration Bill currently passing through Parliament, which will enable the government, amongst other things, to dispatch refugees and migrants to Rwanda to keep them off our shores. And Welby thinks that that's both immoral and impractical, and he's saying so from his seat in the House of Lords. And this is likely to get up conservative noses in the House of Commons because that sort of intervention is unhelpful for the government. 
I don't think Justin Wilby is an out-and-out lefty, so I'm not sure the new statesman has necessarily got that right. I think he's right to intervene because Christian leaders are obliged to intervene to stay on the side of the dispossessed and the vulnerable in society, and there's nothing much more dispossessed and vulnerable than a refugee fleeing um, a war zone. So he's right to be doing that, but I think he's actually holds some very conservative views socially. I mean, he's not, for instance, conducting gay marriages himself, which is very much on the legislative agenda over here. He carries some very traditional views in the House of Bishops in the Church of England. So I think he's more of a Christian Democrat, actually, than a socialist. He did make an appearance at a trade union congress, though, not the normal yeah. stamping ground for an Archbishop of Canterbury, and especially not for someone who in a previous life was an oil trader in the city of London. I don't think he was an oil trader. I think he worked for an oil company. But nevertheless, your point is sound, that he's a child of late capitalism, if you like. I rather admire a priest or a prelate who goes anywhere he's invited. And I dare say that if he was invited to pitch up at a conservative gathering, and there have been a few conservative gatherings as they've tried to find their way as a political party recently, I'm not sure he'd want to turn up to something that made it look like he was standing on a conservative platform any more than he'd turn up to the Labour Party to be on their platform. But you know what I mean? If there was a government convention that he thought he could usefully be a voice at, I'm sure he'd pitch up at that. So he turned up at a trades union congress because the invitation was made to him. But I think we'd be wide of the mark to suggest that he is politically necessarily left wing. Is there a growing rift between not just Archbishop of Canterbury, Justin Welby, but the bishops generally and what a political operative might describe as their base? It's true that the Church of England hasn't been what it used to be called, which was the Conservative Party at prayer. But I don't know that it's less necessarily become terribly left-wing either. Part of the problem here, Andrew, is that we've got a government that's very much on its last legs and really can't get anything done. It casts about itself to find culture wars and issues that it can try and find its stride on again. But it gets to the stage where... Anybody who says something that stands on the side of the dispossessed and the marginalised or something is accused of being wild lefty. Or, and really, it's only people that are saying things that are really consistent with the Christian faith. We have a duty to look after people that are at their most vulnerable and so on. We've got a duty, for instance, on issues not just like immigration, but on issues such as assisted suicide and euthanasia and things like that. The powerless need a voice. The powerless need to be spoken up for. And that's what Welby will do. But it gets to a stage, frankly, that when anybody with a church background or representing the Church of England, it says something that's vaguely like, I don't think it's a good idea to send immigrants to Rwanda. I'm accused of being some sort of radical left winger. I mean, actually, that's a fairly straightforward and centrist thing to be saying. Yeah. Well, I think uh, your king and ours has been known to voice some doubts about the uh, Rwanda refugee policy. Absolutely. And, you know, is anyone really going to say that King Charles III is a raving Marxist? And when you look at Welby, Welby is an old Etonian who has expressed some traditionalist Christian views socially with regard to marriage and so on, you don't usually find old Etonians and figures of the establishment who are archbishops being charged with being radical lefties. 
George Pitcher, former advisor to the Archbishop of Canterbury. Even in a rapidly secularising Australia, it's a minority that totally rejects the idea of a divine presence or saviour. So what replaces the God? Sociologist John Carroll takes a journey through politics, history and especially pop culture in search of the new redeemers for his new book. It's called The Saviour Syndrome, Searching for Hope and Meaning in an Age of Unbelief. Well, it's obviously linked to Jesus. And the background is that we live in a, by and large, a post-church, post-Christian era, post-church in the sense that only 5% of Australians go to church regularly. So it's a very small minority. Post-Christian in the sense that generation after generation is now growing up in this country that hasn't got the foggiest idea who Jesus was or anything about his life. The Bible is a closed book. But my whole work is intrigued about how people find meaning. And in this particular context, which is the one we live in, I'm engaged by the question of what sort of unconscious knowing, what's reverberating under the surface that has come to replace, if it has, the sort of more secure answers that God and Jesus used to provide. But we live, I think you say, in a void, don't we? Not Christian, but not wholly committed to nothingness. There's not a complete rejection of the divine. No, absolutely not. There was a, a large survey in Britain about 20 years ago about what people believed, and you know, 10% were atheists, and it's probably still about that figure. 10% or so, probably a bit larger, were deeply believing Christians. But the vast majority in the middle said, in effect, we believe there's something there, there's something out there. We, we don't know what it is. We're uneasy with God, but there's a sort of metaphysical, supernatural, there's, there's something more than just the sort of physical material existence that hardcore scientists like Richard Dawkins tell us that we're living. So it's in that context of the something there. This book's trying to flesh out more concretely what the something there might be. And I partly take my cue from Roman Rolland, the, the French writer from 100 years ago, had an exchange with Freud in which Rolland said, I always have the sense of eternity somehow around me, a sort of oceanic feeling. And he said, most of the people I know have this sort of, for want of a better metaphor, an oceanic feeling within which we live. I mean, you can think of Australians worshipping on the beach as an obvious example here. And Roland went on to say he thinks the essence of every religion is this oceanic feeling. And it's completely irrespective of creed, doctrine, all the particulars of any religion. What drives religion is this oceanic feeling. Now, I mean, I don't think I'm not the only person. This oceanic feeling hasn't gone away now that God's dead for most people. And... Australian Beach is a classic example. What I'm trying to do in the book is shift to ask the question inside the individual, is there an equivalent to the oceanic feeling? And the argument is that in spite of Jesus, in most senses, having departed Western consciousness, he lives on as a sort of unconscious archetype in the culture. It's like he's sort of in the blood of the West, this sort of Jesus presence. Mm. Well, is it just one Jesus presence? Because, I mean, you talk about Ramon there. I also note that you quote Max Weber, the great uh, 20th century German sociologist, who I think said, in the absence of God, 
which of the warring gods, plural, will we serve? What are the warring gods of 2023, John? (laughs) Basically, there are two Jesuses. There's the church Jesus of basically Luke and Matthew, who the external figure who comes to save the world, who forgives sins. And he's the saviour that comes from the outside outside and beyond the individual. Part one of the book goes through modern examples of that sort of saving figure. The other key Jesus is is the Jesus more of Mark and John, whose central teaching, at least in my understanding of it, is that the key truth, the essential thing to know about the human condition, about, you know, why we're here, and is the I, that sort of his two words statement in Mark is I am. This section of the book is on the the sense of an internalised saviour. It's come through most obviously in modern Western countries like Australia in the belief in authenticity, Mm. that if a person's true to themselves, if they're honest, if they're sincere, they wear their heart on their sleeve, there's a sort of saving inner emanation that comes in that experience. And in the Second part of the book, I go through examples of the inner saviour. I found this part of the book fascinating as I did so much of it. In fact, I was reminded of the closing scene in a boutique movie by the filmmaker Whit Stillman, who makes these brilliant films about the kind of introspection of the American liberal upper middle class. And it was um, the last scene of, uh, of the movie, The Last Days of Disco, and the lead character refers to the maxim, to thine own self be true. And then he says, but maybe this is bad because maybe thine own self is bad. <laughs> well, <laughs> of course, there's a big debate about that. So Jean-Paul Sartre was believed in authenticity, but he, he didn't necessarily think you needed to be a good person. But most of the proponents of to thine own self be true, including Shakespeare, where the saying comes from, think that the authentic self should be a good self. A mass murderer can be true to himself, but that doesn't make him admirable. Whereas authenticity in the main has become an ideal which fuses a sort of truth of being, a being concept with the moral concept of being good at the same time. I take my cue from Princess Diana, you know, the extraordinary tragic presence she became at the time of her death, particularly, and suggest that the great appeal of Diana depended to a very significant degree on the sense that she was authentic. You know, she wore her heart on her sleeve. She was the queen of hearts. She was the people's princess because we sort of trusted You know, what we see is what we get, unlike the rest of the royal family, which is full of masks and pretenses and distance and coldness. And in a sense, she's she's the sort of saint of authenticity in in that context. She was extremely neurotic, very disturbed and did many, many crazy things. But that side of herself, caring for the afflicted, was quite genuine and was good. She was essentially very good. There is a problem, though, that I detect, and I think you detect it too in in the book, with the cult of authenticity, because sometimes we want, especially in a public figure, a bit of a front, a bit of an artifice, don't we? We don't necessarily want all of that public figure's own personal traumas and demons foisted on us, do we? I mean, we do want leaders who can put that aside and put on a brave face when necessary, I would have thought. Yes, I think that's very true. And and I think there was ambivalence about Diana. There was a sort of 
bit of a sense of we should be ashamed looking at all the sort of intimate crying and disclosure of self that came with Diana. I think with politics, though, we step into a different way of looking at the world, and it's not a way of saviours at all, except in a rare case like Abraham Lincoln, that, you know, there's a realistic sense of ourselves that says, basically, politics is a rational business about running a country, and, you know, don't expect to find saints or saviours in politics. That's not their business. A good politician shouldn't aspire to be a saint or a a saviour. But there have been rare exceptions, like Abraham Lincoln in America, who has been for much of the West a sort of saviour figure with a strong spiritual presence as well as a very practical political persona. And a martyrdom. I mean, that is very important. And a martyrdom in the case of Abraham Lincoln. Yes, that's very true. And the, the sort of that image that we all know, the six foot four frame stooped with a harrowed face, deeply saddened by all the people who are dying in the American Civil War. You can see the burdens of office in his face and and also the sense of omission. I mean, this is, in a way, Jesus-like. And then he dies right at, he's killed right at the end of that particular story. But it's almost as if, and and I think this resonates too, something of a a saviour dimension. There's a sense of fatedness, I think, in that looking at Abraham Lincoln closely, that I very reluctantly have been called to this moment in history, this very significant moment in history. And it's my job in this four years I'm president to confront the horrors of slavery, confront the horrors of the Civil War and bring all of this to a resolution. This is the person, there's a sort of law, a higher law governing figure like Abraham Lincoln. And I think it sort of unconsciously, vaguely emanates from his story in a a way that people respond to. One of the more interesting, I don't know whether I'd say you cast him as a saviour motif, but one of the appealing things about this book is you cast this net really wide across both high culture and popular culture. You mentioned Tony Soprano, the fictional mobster. What does that figure of Tony Soprano, who was a complex individual, a fictional individual, but how does he play into the saviour motif? He sets the scene. He's a very important figure for me. He arrives in at the start of the 21st century, almost inaugurates the 21st century, one of the most insightful works of, of literature, of art of any form of the last two or three decades. He's a mobster. He's a very violent man. We, we see him over 86 episodes. In the first episode a flight of ducks arrive in his swimming pool and and he is completely infatuated by them. And even at one point, and talking about archetypes, in his dressing gown one morning, he he steps down into his swimming pool and moves towards the ducks. And the imagery is straight out of Renaissance art of baptism in Christianity. Now, it's like these saving birds, wild birds have arrived. Then they fly away. And he's devastated. In fact, they fly away. They don't come back. And he collapses in a panic attack. He collapses unconscious, the edge of his swimming pool, in a panic attack, which is a symbolic death. He sort of dies. In the ducks, it's almost as if his soul has flown away. Now, Tony's a very successful man. He's rich. He provides for his family very well. He's a brilliant leader of his gang. He's very attached to his gang. He's he's quite a good father of, of two children, a particularly a difficult teenage boy. He's sort of devoted to his wife, although he kind of has endless affairs. I mean, he seduces women all the time. But 
something's not right. There's a magic missing from his world. And right through the 86 episodes, Tony is in search of what the ducks, the the enchantment that the ducks represent, the saving enchantment. They would be his saviour. It's been terrific to speak with you, John. I'm willing to share with Tony Soprano the wonderment about the flight of ducks. Uh, That's where it stops. I don't want any other parts of Tony Soprano's character. Um, Look, it's been terrific to speak with you. Uh, John Carroll, sociologist. John's latest book is The Saviour Syndrome, Searching for Hope and Meaning in an Age of Unbelief. Thank you for joining us, John, on the Religion and Ethics Report. My pleasure, Andrew. And there's a longer version of that discussion if you go to the Religion and Ethics Report homepage. And you can also find us at the ABC Listen app. Thanks to Muta Tadias, Hong Jang, Amanda Roberts and Roy Huberman. I'm Andrew West. Join us again for the Religion and Ethics Report.